Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, people, I usually sit there and I tell a little story, you know, about something me and Joanne did or, or just, you know, or just my ramblings. But today I'm going straight to my guest because uh, I, I was fortunate enough to run into him um, a few weeks ago at uh, when I was doing Christine's, Christine Blackburn's and Hannes Finney's very uh, entertaining podcast, Storyworthy. And I believe he was on after me and actually mine is you can go to storyworthy.com mine just started playing yesterday and then I ran into him at the Robin Williams uh, Memorial this Sunday at the comedy store and uh, yeah we decided he's going to come on my show so I'm excited and it's uh, Yakov Shmirnov how you doing Yakov? Great how are you? Good it's uh, it's good to have you I, you know it's so funny um, first of all everyone says you're like the nicest nicest guy oh thank you but no, that's good though because sometimes people say you know oh that guy's a jerk <laughs> that guy but for you and, thank uh, you I, have to th- I, I was doing some research and now and I always tell my guests this, and I tell my listeners this: um, when you go to w- Wikipedia, yes, it's eighty percent. It's going to be right. Sometimes yeah. it's wrong, and sometimes yeah. people are like, "I was never in that. I was never in that TV show." You know? Sure. But now I was reading about you, and uh, you're originally from uh, the Ukraine. Correct. Okay. Now, um, now I read also you were an art teacher there. Yes. And a, uh, you started doing comedy over there. Correct. Now, was your family into art? I mean, how did you decide to get into comedy? Well, um, my 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 dad was kind of a inventor, create very creative guy, and so and he would draw some things or more. It's more like engineering drawings. So I had the um, privilege to live with a guy who was very creative, and um, no one expected me to do comedy I mean that was not even um, a thought in my parents mind so when when I was funny kid and I I would do this you know since I I, we lived in a communal apartment nine families lived in one apartment that was most most people live like that and so uh, since I was a kid I felt that I got the most attention or the most instant gratification when I made people laugh. So we, let's say, my parents would want to be intimate. I was a little kid and they would send me to look out the window. Okay. And then my dad would say, so what do you see in the window? And I said, our neighbors being intimate. Okay. And and, I, and he said, how can you tell? I said, because their son is looking at me. <laughs> and my parents would laugh, you know, and I felt like I made them happy. And um, I had this revelation as a child. Again, this is not conscious. This is more feeling. I felt good when people were laughing. And I started thinking, well, then probably laughter is a measurement of happiness. That became much later in life. And so, and I believe that, that it's actually... A um, very profound kind of an idea that that simple thing that we're born with because look how many things we have to be trained to do walk and talk and right. read and write and ride the bicycle potty train hopefully not in that order but not laugh laugh if the baby's content and you tickle the baby it's gonna laugh it's a very it's a very you just it happens yeah it's a very primal thing that we all got and I believe that it's a tool an amazing tool because everyone laughs when they're in a good situation when they're happy and so that became kind of later on my passion to to figure this out but what's weird but for me is it's like you know when i talk a lot about comedians who grew up over here yeah you know we were watching the tonight show we were yes. we had the albums i remember having you know carlin mm. and prior yes but for you there wasn't it wasn't like there was a burgeoning comedy scene in russia was there or was there some tv shows that had stand up there was there it was not as uh, you know fertile as it was here not as abundant it was here but there were a few comedians you see here's what most people are not aware that everything was owned by the government everything was ran by the government so you had as a comedian you had the department of jokes that you had to be dealing with and they and that was part of the minister of culture and they would censor your material once a year and you had to stay with the script so nobody was improvising nobody okay. was coming so it has to be very very strategic um and once you got the your material approved you have to stick with it with for a year 
So there were a couple of comedians that were famous in Russia across the whole Soviet Union. One of them was Arkady Rykin, another one was Gennady Hazanov, and uh, a couple more. But those guys were like the leaders. They were like Johnny Carson of, of the Soviet Union at that time. And they would come up with a new monologue or something once a um, couple of months or something like that. And everyone was waiting for that because they were we were starving for comedy and and what but what was it was a mandatory in each room of the apartment they had they call it a dot a dot was a, a government radio there was no other radio but it was a one channel and it was hardwired into your rooms okay and so you would listen to it. So you can only turn it off and turn it on. That's all. There, there was no choices otherwise. And so we would wait for it. And then Sunday morning, once in two, three months, we would hear this new monologue that was f normally very funny. And then there was no such thing as, you know, we could not steal things because nothing, there was not much of anything. So I would forbade them copy that monologue and tell my friends and tell and then as i got older i would g get on stage like a talent show and i would do the monologue and everybody knew it was arkady reichen's monologue it wasn't a surprise but nobody cared because there was so much need for comedy so that's how i developed my um, ability to get on stage and and do comedy. Okay, what well, amazes me also, I said you you play like cruise ships in like the Bal yes. where were in the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. Black yeah. Sea. Now now was the cruise ship a big market there? I mean, how would you as a comic, as you said, they have to censor everything? Did they have to sit there and did like they? I'm sure they didn't have booking agents. I mean, you said the person did it, so they would have to approve you to go on. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you had to be approved by. There, there was an official office like the. Uh, Black Sea cruise ship company, which was all government operated, and they would have a person who, you know, would uh, put you on and and then monitor you that you're staying with the script and all of that. And I was very lucky that I was given um, that opportunity because that really was life changing for me because I was. Um, I I could perform now in front of people who were from other countries. Okay, and that and they would give me an interpreter uh, because I was the um, I was the person who was you know in charge of all the entertainment on the ship. So that's how I got to for interpreters. I got to talk to some people who were from America or from England or from Czechoslovakia or some outside the, the borders. And I, that's where I got the idea that they're happier and they're, they had food before the show. They, right. were, they were, you know, so I, that's what inspired me to, to try to get out. So when you decide to get out, I mean, I, I read, and I don't know if it's true, is you, you and your parents came over to yes. America. Now, and I think it was because there was, they wanted wheat. Is that true? Yes, which, yes. Which is weird. It's like you're thinking like a baseball deal. Like, we'll give you a yak off for a Kind for of, yeah. But so did did you have to go, I mean, when you left, yes. did you have to check with the government? So oh, the fact, yeah. Or, but, but they were fine with it because they wanted wheat? Yes. Jimmy Carter was, you know, great for us because he made a deal with them. They needed wheat and we needed freedom. So he made a deal of wheat for freedom. Right. And so we were exchanged for some tons of wheat. And literally my parents and I got out on, on the wheat on the wheat ticket. And every time I see a Wonder Bread truck, I salute, you know. <laughs> That's true. I'm not kidding. So so it but it still was a very long process, a couple of years of of scrutiny and this they they didn't want people to leave. So they made it very, very difficult. So anybody who was not really uh, a fighter, not really con sure that they wanted to go, they made sure that they didn't go. They made it scary. They made it. They made you go to five different places of your employment that you've been working and get a letter of reference from them. Like who is going to, you know? But they wanted you to be embarrassed and go back to 
the people and they made it on television and everything. Those are those people are traitors that, you know, mother country, mother Russia made gave them everything and they are leaving they're like so so it was not an, a pleasant uh, experience to go through, but it was worth every every moment of it. Well, I've heard, like over there, I know I had Ty Babylonia, who was a figure skater who visited mm. Russia during mm. the Olympics, and she just said it was, when you're an American, it's like you were watched everywhere. Like she said, it was just amazing. Like every corner, she goes, you knew yeah. you're someone there. So you leave, and now you end up in New York City. Yes. Now, to be honest, when you're leaving Russia for the first place to land in New York City must have been, I mean, because I grew up back east, and you know, even when I grew up back east near Philadelphia, when you were younger and you went to New York City, you're like, wow, and that's back when New York City oh, was yeah. New York City. Yeah. What was it like for you? you? You hadn't been to America before. You'd been on a cruise ship, so you've met some Americans. Yeah. But you end up in New York City, and that's in the middle of the hustle and bustle. This is what, like 77? 77, yeah. So what was, I mean, were you just in awe, and also were you scared at all? all of it all of it i mean i tell a joke in you know i got off the plane i saw my name written big letters america loves smirnoff so right. i felt at home but um it was not easy because we didn't speak english neither my parents nor i um we were going for immigration office and they gave us an interpreter who was a russian guy who barely spoke english and so they asked me, what do you want to do in America? And I said, you know, I, I, would like to do, I would like to be a comedian. But the guy didn't know how to translate it. So, so he started explaining them that he's going to uh, be party organizer. And at that time, the communists was like this biggest fear that they had. So they thought it was the communist party organizer. <laughs> And they're all of a sudden, they're on the walkie-talkies, and they're coming, well, we got one, you know. And now I'm, like, standing there, and I'm like, what did you say? And he said, I tried to explain it, so two Russian guys are going. And he's going, no, no, I don't mean that. No, what comedy, funny, you know. So it wasn't funny. So there was a lot of, a lot of those kind of mishaps that, that was happening. Um, but, but... We we landed in Kennedy Airport, and one of the th stories I tell that the word yep, yep in English means yes, and Russian means sex. Okay. So we're walking through the airport, and we hear people say yep, yep. <laughs> and I'm going, no wonder they're happy in America, you know? So so that, that those things uh, kind of became something that I started developing little by little, and in New York was... You know, uh, first impression was Queens, actually, because friends of ours who, who we knew in America met us at the airport, and they took us to their home, and they lived in flashing Queens. Okay. And I'm expecting, like, you know, a sky rise or, you know, like tall building. And, and in Queens, they're five stories, six stories max, right? So I'm going, are you sure we're in America? Because we've seen the, so, and, and my, my friend said, well, go tomorrow to Manhattan and, and that's where you're gonna see a real America. So I remember getting off the train and walking up in Fifth Avenue kind of a, a station and looking up and I'm going, now I can't even see the tops because the, uh, of the buildings because the clouds were lower than the, so then I said, now I, I know I'm in America, so. So you're there and now you still want, you wanted to be a comedian. Well, it was a dream, but but quiet dream because I was really, no matter who I was telling to, you know, I would I in the immigration finally after they figured out I wasn't a party organizer, you know, communist party. They said, so what do you want to do? I and I said the comedy. So he translated comedy, and and they start laughing at me because I didn't speak English, and and then I saw dogs. They were sniffing our luggage. And I said to the interpreter, what are they doing? And this, he said, they're looking for drugs. And I said, wow, in America, even dogs hooked on drugs. Right. <laughs> what a country, you know. And, and they started laughing again. I said, I'm doing pretty good so far if I can make <laughs> the immigration officials laugh. So, so the dream was there. However, uh, the reality was I had two elderly parents Nobody spoke English. I had to get a job. So, but in the back of my mind, I'm going, what am I going to do? What kind of job? And somebody 
mentioned bartending. And it resonated with me because on the cruise ships, um, the bar was in the same room as the comedy show was. So I was like going, wow, that's, so that could give me the same audience and I can maybe speak English to them and practice my jokes. All of that was in the back of my mind. But it was very quiet because we had to survive. We had to get an apartment. Right. We, had to, we had to live. <laughs> so, um, so, But I did find a school in Manhattan that was um, a bartending school and they they just it was two hundred dollars, which was a lot of money for us, but we scrapped whatever, sold whatever we need to do, and I attended that school for two weeks, and I got a diploma as a mixologist, even though I expect I spoke very little English. Um, they didn't care; they just took my money, and and right. then <laughs> I would bring. I had a big tape recorder, all the old toaster, and I would record all of these sessions that they were teaching you know about bloody mary or you know grass up or whatever and then i found an american girl who i became my girlfriend first girlfriend and i would bring the tape recorder with me and she would listen to this with me and we would get you know uh test a little bit of okay. bloody mary <laughs> or whatever and it was fun to learn kind of hands-on and and we had a good time and that's how i was learning english so you learned the english and you're doing the bartending and you're working yeah and now did you hit this did you start hitting the stages in new york or was that until you came to la i did uh the catch a rising star a couple of times comic strip a couple of times but it was very limited it was late at night and i remember jerry seinfeld being uh, he was you know uh, mc at the comic strip at that time and he would come out and he would say, okay, you rookies, you know, um, you're going to get a five-minute shot, um, and you're gonna, you can only come back every other week, and you, and then he said the word, you will indubitably do this for the rest of your life. And I didn't know what the word <laughs> indubitably was. I didn't know what bread was, so but so I went and and I looked it up in a dictionary, and I thought, man, that I want to speak like that one day, you know, to say indubitably. Anyway, so I would go to those, but it was tough because I, you know, my English was still very very bad, and uh, and so nothing really hap was happening there except I I got a job, I at. Um, um, it's called, it was called Greeting Bells, and it was a company that a lot of Russian people were working for, and they were um, putting together bell, like some decorations for Christmas trees. And, uh, and my parents did that at home. They would watch TV, and they would put those things, glue those things, and they didn't get payment, but they needed a shipping manager. And so I went, and I, I applied for a job, and and I became a shipping manager for this greeting bell company. Well, the lady who owned the company liked me and she thought um, she wanted to help me even I would fantasize, tell her about my comedy career. And she said, you know, I know somebody who knows somebody. Um, I was telling that story right. at, uh, at the memorial. I know somebody, you know, uh, who um, is a producer of Three's company, Ted Bergman. and." Uh, I can make an introduction, and if you want to go for 10 days, um, I'll give you a vacation for 10 days, and you go to New York, uh, to, from New York to LA, and you audition for him, and hopefully he will help you. And So I had the fantasy I'll be a star in 10 days. I knew somebody who knew somebody that is, so I, I fly to New York, and I go to, um, I lined up two auditions, one at the improv and one at the comedy store. And uh, the improv was okay, but it was late, really, really late at night, and very few people were there, so it wasn't really, didn't happen. But the second day, you know, Ted Bergman was supposed to come and watch me, and I have this fantasy. He's going to see me, and I'll become a star, <laughs> and they'll sign me for this major contract, and I can go home and buy an apartment on Fifth Avenue, all of those fantasies were there, and I need to do it in 10 days. I had this deadline. And so uh, a second edition was at the comedy store. 
and uh, I was, uh, you know, lucky to get a good time slot. Um, and this uh, assistant Mitzi Shores, I didn't know who Mitzi was. I didn't know, I didn't know where I was, and but I just needed a place to perform for Ted Bergman. And so I, um, um, I, I go, I, you know, right before I was supposed to go on, you know, I get the message that Ted is not going to be able to make it, and I was devastated because my plans. My career was right. ruined. <laughs> I have two more, three more days in in L.A., and I'm not going to become that big star. No. So that was my last shot. And so I, I go on, and I do like five-minute set, you know, and people are laughing, and they're really friendly, and it worked out good. But I'm disappointed and sad, and I'm walking away, kind of going, oh, well, I blew it. I got to go back to New York. And uh, Chrissy, um, Mitz's assistant, runs after me, and she goes, congratulations, you did great. And you know, I said, well, thank you, thank you. And I'm polite, but I'm not happy. <laughs> and so uh, she said, you know, Mitzi liked you. And I, I said, who is Mitzi? Uh, and, and she said, she's the owner of the comedy store. And I go, well, that's very nice. But I'm still leaving. And she <laughs> said, no, no, don't leave. Go talk to her. Go talk to her. And so I go in, and it's dark booth, and I'm sitting with Mitzi in the booth, and she says, you were very good, very good. You should stick stick around. Stay in Los Angeles. There's always place for good and different. I still don't know who I'm talking to. Right. And I said, okay, all right. And she said, and do you have time tomorrow? Come back, see a regular show. So I come back next day, and Mork and Mindy at that time hit number one, big time. Sixty million people were watching Robin be genius. And guess who appear first person on stage is Robin Williams, and I my jaw hit the floor. I could not believe it, and I watched him for like twenty thirty minutes killing the whole room was just exciting and in addition to that right after him was david letterman and after that was jeff altman and after that was billy crystal and after that richard pryor came one night it's amazing i mean when you think about it back then the lineups and a lot of times people just paid like just to get in to see a yeah. show and then they yeah. go oh my yeah. god like yeah. wait a second i've just seen like legends i i felt like i died and went to heaven i I could, so my, I never used that ticket. I never, um, I literally, I stayed in LA. And um, Mitzi was so nice to, she gave me a job. She gave my dad a job actually, because I said, I gotta go back because my parents are there and they need to live on something, you know, and I'm the, the sole provider. And she says, well, what does your dad do? And I said, well, he is a building construction engineer. So well, he can be a handyman here. Bring him over. So I got my parents to L.A. and got a place to live where all the, you know, comedians hang out. It was Mitzi had a big house uh, with a lot of rooms that she would rent to all the comedians very reasonably. And so that's where I met all those major people. Robin would come there all the time and. You know, I mean, uh, Andrew Dice Clay lived there. We were, we were roommates for three years, you know, so it was amazing. Well, I know Robin and then getting you on uh, Moscow on the Hudson, right? And that, yes. That, now, you were doing comedy. Now, when did you bring the name Shmirnoff in? At what were you, when you started doing it in stand up oh, yeah. in uh, the comedy store, were you going as Yakov Shmirnoff? Oh, then? yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so I, I got, I, when I was working as a bartender, that's the only word that everybody could remember. Shmirnov, Shmirnov, Shmirnov. So they would say, what's your name? Yaakov. Yaakov Shmirnov, you know, okay. and that's how it stuck. So you, you got the, on the Moscow and the Hudson. That must have been exciting because you ha you weren't here that long. I mean, 81. To, be, to be in a major, ma I mean, that's a major motion picture. Oh I mean, gosh. what was going through your head? I mean, you're sitting there probably going, oh my God, I'm actually realizing my dream and it happened very quickly. You know what, Steve? It's probably, I think I started realizing it way later. I was just, I didn't know any better. So I thought that it just happens to everybody. 
you know, not that I took it for granted at all. No, no, no. Not a, I worked really hard, and I did everything that I knew how to do to, to get up there. But I didn't realize there was something happening that was also helped me. It was like the wind, the current was happening. And the current was the Cold War. And later, I mean, I'm talking about like a couple of years ago, this dawned on me that, wow, I, I just caught a wave. I, wa- I walked into something. Yes, I, was, I had talent and I had perseverance and desire, all of the true. And, and none of that would work without those elements. However, there was a major need. America had pain. It was a headache. And I was the aspirin. And I was the Advil, whatever. It and they embraced me like, thank you for doing that. I didn't have the intelligence at that time or savvy to even understand that, that I was on this wave that was huge until it crashed, until 1991, Soviet Union collapsed. And, and David Letterman had this top 10 list of things that now will change that the Soviet Union is no longer there. And I made number one on the list. Yakov Smirnov will be out of work. Okay. And and I everybody was laughing. I wasn't laughing. I had, I was living in two and a half million dollar home in Pacific Palisades. My mortgage was eight thousand dollars at that that a month at that time. I had I, all of a sudden my contracts were gone. Like in over. I mean, it took six months, but they were not renewed. I was not relevant anymore. And I started looking for a place where they did not know that the Soviet Union collapsed. And that's how I ended up in Branson, Missouri. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because I think about it because you were so big with everything. And well, what was it like? I mean, you know, at the time when you were at, you know, when the wave, as you said, happened, which has happened to so many people who were in the business, they catch a wave, but they have, as you said, they have the talent and the perseverance, so they know how to ride that wave. They, like you. Yes. It's like if you, if you sucked... It, right. it wouldn't work. Right. But, exactly. So you wrote and you came up with stuff. Yeah. But what was it like? Because everyone knew who you were. I mean, that must be weird. You know, you you were in New York in '77. Then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, your life yeah. must have changed. I mean, yeah. I'm sure some people thought you were much more Russian than you were. They right. didn't know. I know you paint and stuff like that. You know, you do all this stuff. Right. What was that like when people would meet you? They must have, were they? I mean, a lot because a lot of Americans didn't know what a Russian was back then. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it was gradual. It wasn't like overnight. You know, we're still we're talking '77, and probably my peak of my career in 1986 probably was when I was sworn in as an American citizen at the Statue of Liberty ceremonies, July 4th, 1986, and I think that I had my sitcom at that time. What a country! I was. Um, on the cover of Parade Magazine, I would be, I mean, at that point, the, there was a peak of of, uh, of what I, and again, I never let it get to my head. It was, it was great, it was nice, but it was just, I was living my life, you know, and uh, I, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a problem. I didn't, that wasn't my issue with like the crashing part um, that I wasn't recognized or wasn't as re- that that never bothered me one way or another I was fine what was bothering me that I built up this you know American dream where where I was consuming way more than I needed to consume and then all of a sudden I was married I had two kids and I back in the survival mode. You have to reinvent yourself. I mean, yeah. you basically, you have to do everything. everything. So so you said, now, Branson, you said because they knew they still, and I always, I was, t- I was thinking well, about the other day, they, they probably, they don't, re- I mean, nothing against certain places, but some places aren't up to date as Oh, cities. no, no, no. They knew what was going on. It's just a different kind of community. In that community, real, uh, honestly, the real true values matter. Uh, they they admire hard work. They admire it's like it's like Wild West. They it's like Wild West open to everyone. You wanna you can get a shovel, 
You can start digging, you can become multimillionaire, or you can just, you know, not make it at all. And that's how it is there. You welcome you welcome to start your own theater. You're welcome to there's no major corporation that controls anything. So you're just like, okay, what do you got? Show it us. And I was able to to resonate with those values and the values that the kindness, the patriotism, the family, uh, the clean humor, all of those things are valued. And I just happened to fit in. Now, it must have been a little bit of a culture shock, though, going from L.A. to uh, Branson. And and now, how did you pick the theater you wanted? Was it already built? or? Yeah, I initially rented the theater that was small and stayed there for a little while until I built up my my strength and then all of a sudden you know i was the guy there and uh i would have gosh i entertained over four million people since that got there so it it started slow i mean it started scary again two little kids i get there um and you, you open your place and you are on your own there's nobody sponsors it. this is it and you pay for advertising, marketing, everything, and you do PR, everything. So my first show I had was only 17 people showed up. And I went like, holy right. cow, how am I gonna make <laughs> this thing happen? But then again, I'm a survivor and I go into overdrive and I started making friends, connections, and and the, the next show I had 20 people, and. After that, but I would do 400 shows a year. So, but you like had one night off, or you like no nights off? Sometimes. Or, yeah. So you would just keep pounding it, just and pounding, keep pounding it, yeah. And people started coming, and then they're coming and they're discovering and they're liking it. And then, in to, 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 to 1995, I would have 3,000 people a show. I mean, it just would be bizarre to see that, and buses would lined up like everywhere, and. And uh, and then and then the economy hit, so I had to change strategies and stuff like that. So, but it's been a blessing. Well, I know you uh, also have gone and gotten your masters. Yes. Now, how did that come about? I mean, because you think about it, you're you're doing you're having this show, the successful. And I know you you seem to acclimate very quickly, and you you know as you said, you're a survivor. But a lot of you don't hear a lot of times when people are are being successful in entertainment, unless it's like a you know, someone who dropped out of college, they go back and get their honorary degree. Right. What made you decide you wanted to get your master's and had you had understudy? Like, had you had a, had a, had a did you have to start just all from college from the scratch? Oh yeah, yeah, from scratch, everything. From, I mean, I, I had my, my undergraduate degree in art in Russia. And so, but, but that wasn't the main, the main drive. The main drive was I went for a divorce and, um, and that was really devastating because I pride myself that I accomplish or achieve everything I set my mind to. And I totally had the intention to be married forever. And, um, and what was happening, one of the signs that I believe that is connecting all of this, that laughter was gone out of our relationship we couldn't we couldn't there was no connection there was things were not happening it took a while and it took you know after the kids were born we and then the moving to Branson and then um a lot of challenges to building up the business all of that at that time we were busy and then when we start looking that when things start stabilized we realized we were no longer together we were disconnected and 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 that was really difficult to accept. And I start looking for the common denominator. What is happening? And when when it phased me, when I when I realized that we're getting a divorce, I start looking around how many people are getting a divorce. And then, as a comedian, I realized that the laughter was there in the beginning, in the abundance, and we would just you know, laugh all the time. I mean, it would be like silly stuff. You know, we would be on the phone, I would be in another state and we would be like giggling, laughing. And then one of us would say, it's late, we need to go to sleep. You hang up first. And the right. other one said, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. Did you hang up? Yeah. 
And then, then I was like going, you hang up first. Hello, hello, it's gone. So I'm going, what's happening? And then I started noticing this, that laughter, just as I told you in the beginning of our interview, laughter was, my parents were laughing. When I would create laughter, I knew we were connected the right way. And that was gone. And I started tracing this, and I started doing research on this. And because I was doing all this research anyway, I said, you know what? I want to go and learn more about this. And that's where I went back to, to college. And I, and I picked the best school I could find. It was the University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school. And I've, uh, the professor that I was studying with, Martin Seligman, is the leading professor in positive psychology. And that was dream. I was like, yes, I have a person that I respect. I knew his work. He wrote this book called Authentic Happiness. And I believe that laughter is a measure of authentic happiness. So it was like a match made in heaven. And he, when he heard that I want to attend, he was like on my side. He even waited because they're, they already closed the uh, su uh, submission of the documents. And he said, I'll wait for you if you can do it right away. And I said, you got it. So I got all the documents translated from Russian to, you know, to English. And did, all. did you move to the Philadelphia area? No. Okay. I would commute. I would continue. I kept my theater going, but I would do the master's program was, it, it's called executive program. So you go for once a month for uh, four days during the weekend and the rest of it you do online. And then you go for a whole month uh, for, um, you know, finals. I mean, it was very structured, very well structured, made for people who were top executives or top people in that field who wanted to have that kind of education. So you commuted from that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'd say. So, so you get, you get out of that, done there. Now, I know you eventually, you've, you have taught at some schools. Oh, yeah, I teach now. I, I teach uh, at... Uh, Missouri State University, I teach a um, course on happiness. Now, how, how did that come about? Did you have to go, to, you have your master's, and then do you sit there and go, you know, you're doing your comedy, and you're doing this, but then you're sitting there and go, do you go, okay, I want to teach? You know, you know, this is a great question, because I was doing an interview with a, a guy on uh, NBC local station in Springfield, Missouri, and he wanted to talk to me because I just got my master's degree. And so as we're winding down the interview, he said, well, good luck, Professor Smirnov. And it's just had a ring to it. And I said, well, after the interview was over, I said, Steve, what, what do you, what do you, his name is Steve, and, and Steve Grant. And I said, Steve, what's, uh, why did you say that? He said, I, I think you should teach. And I was like, really? And because everybody knows me in that area, I went, you know, and actually I took a seminar prior to that in Missouri State University, and and I taught a seminar on this, but it was, I didn't plan to, like, do it as, a, you know, as my, um, something that I would do. And uh, the dean came over to me after I finished uh, teaching the seminar, and he said, that was a really great seminar. And he gave me a plaque with honorary professor Smirnov. And I'm going, that's a sign right. that people are like, you know. So then I asked him, would you like me to teach? And he said, are you sure you want to? I said, well, I can do maybe one semester a year. And he said, that would be fantastic. And so that's how I started. So you're doing it. And I, I'm guessing, because you know, when I was in college, you know, we, we always gravitated to the professors that we liked. I mean, I had a guy named Ted Van Bossi who would, you know, I think he'd be half lit when he came in. He's in all finance. And you'd ask him, you'd ask him like a question. And he'd be like, Ted, how do you do this? And he, he'd end up giving you the answer. So that was the thing. We're like, okay, you go about, you know, you get you'd scheduled at six o'clock, so he's already in the basket because he had happy hour. Then you go and you ask him <laughs> when you don't know the question, but you know, but you'd go and then, but some then, then you'd say, Oh, that professor's so boring. Yeah. The students must have loved you. Oh, yeah. One of my friend's dads is a professor of uh, uh, dentistry at Temple University, <laughs> and he left his practice and he 
did that, and the students love him because he looks like Bob Euchre, and he's a, he's a nice guy. Yeah. For you, you, your class must go quickly because one, well, people, the students probably know you because of Branson. Right. Two, they know your name. Yeah. And three, they probably say, well, he's a comedian. He's teaching. And it's what's the class called? It's called ha- yeah, well, happiness. The, the class is called uh, the. The actual official name is the business of laughter. Okay, so they're probably going. This, I mean, it's one of those classes. Yeah. Like I had to take a class right. called volcanoes. If we if we had offered yours, you must. Do, you, do students line up to get in your class? Well, my first class. This is was hundred. I had hundred and twenty students. I realized it was way way too many. I mean, because I have to create all the papers and all that. Then I was like, I was staying up right. nights, you know, going, "What am I crazy?" You know, but it was. It felt good, you know. It it felt at first it was really exciting to first teaching. And my mom actually, my mom was a teacher uh, for thirty five years, so she came to the class and sat through the. That was great. And so, but then second time I said, you know, let's cut it 40, you know. So 40 students is really a good class for me. And yeah, students love it. They don't, they think it's an easy A. Um, It's not. Are you a hard grader? Well, it's not that. What I'm doing, it's a life-changing psychology. It's really changes people's perspective on what's happening it's a i teach the forms of communication that create a lot more happiness and laughter and it the concepts are so um big they they're they're condition i make them funny and i make them interesting but they really turn people around and a lot of them are like young kids you know there could be freshmen or you know, and there could be graduate students too that come back and they go, we thought we were just going to learn how to make, tell jokes, right. you know. No, they're actually learning how to create happiness. Now, as you're teaching, are you still doing this stand-up? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that must, you're wearing a bunch of hats. It must be a little crazy because you have that high schedule of the shows yeah. and then you're still teaching. Yeah, it's okay. The, you know, the show, it's my own theater, so everything is set up. I know what I'm saying. I, I, my staff knows and crew knows what's going to happen. Um, so, I actually it's more challenging to teach because you have to, you have to, you know, grade papers and you have to adjust. So, uh, my comedy I do only two months out of the year there, um, and I, I just show up October 1st and then I go through December 6th and I do 50 shows back to back but um, the college you know it's not it's not that big of a deal I, I figured it out the formula and it works fine now your comedy now how has your act changed? Because you had to re- reinvent your whole act I mean yes. and they, you know and now I mean I'm sure you can't do any of the the Cold War stuff anymore? Have you just? Did you well, have to just actually, rewrite? Actually, actually, yeah, oh yeah. The, the show have changed dramatically because you know if you see it 20, 20, 25 years ago, it's totally different. The show is called Happily Ever Laughter, and it's all about relationships, really. And it's like it went. It it started as a, in the Cold War because Reagan and Gorbachev got along because of laughter. And laughter was a gauge of their relationship, and that kind of became a, a um, springboard to recognize. But what was not happening in my relationship with my ex, and it kind of evolved into helping people recognize that there's a cold war in their bedroom. Okay. And they can fix it. They can change it. They can create laughter. And I'm not talking about like pointing and laughing in the bedroom. Right. I'm talking about genuine understanding how to meet each other's needs. And so that's part. That's the show. And if people want to see it, actually, this would be a good time to plug it. Yeah, well, I was. I was. You know, we're on the go same. Go for it. You, I was say, people, you can see the show this Saturday at the. Uh, the historical, very legendary improv yes. on uh, Melrose. It's on Melrose, people. Uh, and if you go to improv.com and you go, and I'm sure they list different rooms, you go to the Melrose room this Saturday at 8 o'clock. That's mm-hmm. uh, August 23rd at 8 o'clock. Uh, tickets are usually $18, which for LA is great. 
Yeah. And, you know, because, you know, you go to a concert, it's going to cost you 60 Right. You go, and it's intimate, and it's a, and they've redone it, I've heard. The yeah, other. it's, it's a great beautiful room, in there. a great room. And if you, if you go and you make reservations and buy tickets, I guess, you have to buy tickets. You go online, buy your tickets, but you can... And Type in Cooper. Cooper. C, you know, no, C-O-O-P-E-R, and you'll get a two-for-one. All caps. Have to be all caps. All caps. Cooper. Yes, C-O-O-P-E-R, Cooper. and you'll get all caps. And you'll see Yakov, and you can hear about his act and you know you can you can check it out and go wow this is cool we just heard him talking and about they'll get two for one ticket right two because they're listening to your broadcast exactly so now your act you no know, is it hard for you because you went through a divorce is it hard for you writing on that stuff or have you grown no, a lot no 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 it's 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 really feeding this it's really i'm i'm working right now on on the sitcom script that would i would play yakov professor uh, who is teaching the course on happily ever laughter, and that's that's really exciting because this knowledge, the world right now, there's so our front. We have pretty much everything in this country, except one thing: we're not abundant in love and laughter, and that's what I'm here for. That's what I want. How to, and I figured out the formula. Uh, of how to bring it back and how to sustain the honeymoon stage because we all, you don't have to be a comedian to create laughter during that honeymoon stage. Everyone remembers it. I ask over 4 million people in my theater, you know, and they all remember giggling, laughing, all of that. And then slowly, once the honeymoon stage is over, they don't know how to sustain it. That That's why I'm here to help. Now, you uh, you write for AARP, I believe? I used to. I did it for three years. You know what bothers me about AARP? And I, and I, and I don't, I just turned 50 in October. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I swear to God, it's like, and I was talking to some of my friends from high school who are turning 50, and we see it on Facebook, and they're like, oh my God, I'm getting it. They're, they're like, they're like stalkers. Like once you turn like 49 and a half, you start getting that stuff in the mail. And, and you sit there, and you know, I think like my, my, my mom, my father passed when he would, have, he would have been 90 this year. He passed at 88. My mom, you know, is 84. Uh-huh. And there are people, they use the ARP. Sure. Like when I was a kid and they turned yeah. 50, no one was getting the ARP yeah. at 50. Yeah. And now you sit there and go, it's like as soon as you turn 49 and a half, you get it. And we're much younger now. Like yes. I, I think people... Were, a 50, and it's true, 50 is like the 35. Right. I went to my high school reunion. The women all look great. They dress nice. They're in yeah. great shape. I mean, they look better than the young girls. Yeah. And you get this, and it's yeah. something that you go, what the hell? Now, how did you end up writing for them? Well, it was an interesting thing. Uh, they came to Branson. A lot of older people uh, come to Branson. And so they were there, and uh, they came to see my show, and they asked me, would you be interested to write a column? And they knew that I, you know, graduated, you know, college, the master's degree in psychology. So they were looking for a relationship column. And I agreed to do it. And it was actually very, very good for my business because a lot of people who come to Branson read to that. But the reason I'm moving back to Los Angeles is because I believe that this knowledge is universal that I uh, discovered. It's like a law of laughter. And it needs to be fame. It needs to be not for my fame, for people to be able to know how to get it back, how to create it, how to... Average person should be able to know it, just like gravity. Before Newton got hit on the head with an apple, nobody paid attention to gravity. They all felt it. They all lived with it for, you know, since the beginning of time but nobody paid attention to it. And then he made it famous and made it to pay attention to and measured it and all that. I believe yak yaks should be the measurement of laughter and how many yak yaks per hour or how many yak yaks per month you're getting. And uh, and that's what, you know, so, so the reason I'm moving to LA is because I want to share this knowledge on the biggest medium and give it to the people who really can do something with it. And so that's why I stopped working with the ARP. Not nothing personal. My column was one of the most popular columns they had. And I said, I just, I, this is not the demographic I want to address. Now, are you, are you working on a book with all this? I am. However, it's not it's not finished. So I think that it's more of a it's going to be more of a podcast uh, evolution 
sitcom evolution and then the book is going to follow now you said you know you, you're what because here's the biggest medium for you to push it and you do have a background in comedy but have you ever in your mind thought that you can do it as a motivational speaker type instead i mean using like when you're a professor you're not doing something have you ever sure. thought where you could bridge that because i think because you were a comic and you made people laugh yeah and because you also a lot of people don't know you're a professor but if you right. read you know, stand-up comic, you know, you know, professor. I think people, because people love to go to those motivational seminars yeah. and, and it's such a different crowd. Like comedy crowd, you know, let's be honest. And people, you go, <laughs> you go, to, you go to a stand-up comedy show, there's people who are going to see you. Yes. There's people who are just going to see comedy. Yes. And there's just like idiots who got free tickets sometimes who True. just, they're not, they're not there unless you're paying like 75 or $85 but a show. But that's not people who are listening to this show. Right. But I'm saying for you, I mean, it would. You, it seems like you would have the perfect market to do that motivational, yeah. where it's a seminar, where it's yeah. and but it's also comedy. Have you ever thought of doing that? I have, and I've done it too, and it works. However, the people who listening to your program right now need to know this, right? Would they all go to a motivational speaker? No, uh, but would they come to more of a comedy show? Probably yes. Right. So I think that the bigger, I'm seeing a wider range. If I can be on ABC TV on a weekly basis for the next seven years to, to share this knowledge and it becomes common knowledge, it becomes just there. It's the, in my opinion, that's the, still the widest medium that I would like to have to be able to share that. Now, how do you pitch a project like that? Because it's, you know, because everyone here, it has to be concise. Yes. Like, what would your pitch be for the show? I know the professor and, you know, the happiness and the yeah. laughter. But what, what would a pitch be for you? It's, it's the professor who um, teaches relationships but still has challenges in his own. Okay. Basically, that's the pitch. And that's what makes it funny because, you know, let's say... You know, at in college, I teach the difference between men and women, and uh, at at my home, I practice that, and so it's kind of like my workshops where I work and she shops. Yeah, you know, and so those are the things that we uh, the characters are very interesting too. You know, it's like it would be my wife and her sister who would be opposites, and and so it's a very cool, and that's what I'm working on right now, writing that script. Now, I would look on your website, and there's something called Dinner with Yakov. Mm -hmm. Now, what is that? Well, in my theater, I found that um, the best way to have this intimate environment <laughs> with my 2,000 closest <laughs> friends are, is to uh, bring food into this. So, literally, I, I, do, I do about 45 minutes um, of the show, and then... We show them a clip from my night court episode, about 10 minutes. And during that 10 minutes, we serve the meal, uh, a dinner. And then I come out and I get my meal and I sit on stage and I, we have a conversation. It's like you and I. Do you eat? As you're oh, yeah, a little bit. I, I can't speak and what? eat at the same time. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Matters. My yeah. dad would yell me. For it. What kind of food is it? Well, it's delicious. I mean, it, it's like chicken and, okay so it's yeah. not russian cuisine we tried russian in the midwest it <laughs> didn't hit hard yeah yeah so you just you do you, you talk to them so it's very intimate yeah very intimate and then i continue the show after dinner is over so it's a two-hour experience but but they also have dinner now are you glad you're back in la yes yes i am it's challenging it's exciting um I, I've gone through this rodeo before, so I kind of know. But it, what it does, the, the great thing about being in L.A., it puts you in shape. Literally, it's like I feel like an athlete who, you know, who went on a pro tour. And I, you know, I kind of enjoy. I, I've been doing this for four million people. So I, I'm, I'm still in shape, but not the shape that like 25-year-olds right. who are doing this five-minute sets and they, you know. 
So it's exciting to get back into that and do those. So I go like the this uh, tomorrow I'm at the comedy and magic clubs. Uh, Thursday I'm going to kind of in magic club. Then I'm in the improv. So every room is different. It it makes you adjust. It makes you stronger. It makes you uh, excited. You know. So yeah, I'm 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 happy to be back. We have a few minutes left. Uh, I I wanted to ask you real quick about what was it like when you did the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner. Well, I was lucky to meet the president, uh, President Reagan, and I met several. I, I did several shows in in the White House, and the correspondence dinner is uh, intimidating uh, because there are like 3,000 correspondents who are the elite, and they really don't pay much attention to anything that they unless they want to pay attention right. to. So you know, they're they're trying to quiet them down and they're talking to each other. They're all buddies, they're all friends and three thousand people just buzzing, blah, 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 you know. And you you're sitting there on the on the dais and I'm next to Pres President Reagan and Nancy Reagan and I'm the speaker and um and and nobody the, the the MC is trying to get them to come down. Nobody's listening. I mean, I'm going. Oh God, that's a tough room. Tough room. And um, and President Reagan leans to me and he says, "So, what would you do with Gorbachev? How would you handle Gorbachev?" I'm not kidding. I'm like, <laughs> I'm pinching myself. I'm going. I and I said, well, I I would make him laugh. That's what I would do. And you know, I'm sure you can do that same thing. So. And then, and then they introduce me, and I'm nervous because I don't think they'll shut up. Right. You know, <laughs> they got it got quiet, like the, you could hear the pin drop. I mean, I the power of that. I walked on and I said hi, and they were totally paying f full attention. And the only other person who got that kind of attention was the president when he spoke. The rest of it, they just could care less. That must have been amazing. Amazing, amazing, and. But I was very, very blessed to be able to, um, after the correspondence dinner, I got a call uh, from Dana Rohrbacher, who was a congressman Rohrbacher later. But at that time, he was President Reagan's head speechwriter. And he said, President Reagan's going to go to Russia to meet with Gorbachev for the first time. And he said, um, he wants to do a speech in front of all the Russian politicians in Kremlin. So he would like you to write some jokes for his speech and i'm thinking if this doesn't work i don't have any countries to go to. <laughs> i'll be an official comedian for fidel castro so i uh, but i was honored and also i what do you say no to this right. i mean you'd be audited for the rest of your life you know so i said sure i'll do it and i wrote some jokes they liked them they put them in the speech and watching that satellite broadcast from coming from Kremlin, I'm in my home in Hollywood, and the President Reagan opens with my joke. And uh, he said, you know, um, I know you had trouble um, transitioning from socialism to capitalism because Russian politicians have been sitting in one place for so many years, they don't want to give up their seat. And a friend of mine, Yakov Smirnov, told me the story. I'm going, oh, great. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. And uh, and when the child is born in Russia, an angel will come down from the skies and kiss that child. If the child is kissed in his forehead, he's going to be a genius. If he's kissed in his lips, he's going to be an incredible speaker. If he's kissed in his hand, he's going to be an outstanding artist. I don't know what place this angel kissed those politicians, so they will not give up their seat. <laughs> and no one laughed. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I better give Fidel Castro a call. <laughs> And but I forgot that they they were waiting for the translation right. for these headsets and and, then and it was the longest thirty seconds of my life and then the crowd went crazy and I went and changed my pants so <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on I want to thank pleasure. you it was great uh, so people uh, go to improv dot com please go to improv dot com it's this Saturday August twenty third at eight p.m. the the historical improv and uh, usually tickets are eighteen dollars. They will be two for one if you go to the improv.com and in capital letters type in 
Cooper, and you'll get the discount. And now your website is yakov.com. And people go check his website out. It's a very interesting website. And yeah, so uh, please go see him. Go to improv.com, two for one, Cooper, all caps. And that's uh, two for one. So instead of uh, $36, you get two for $18. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have about 285 episodes up on there. Also, uh, I'll be starting on iHeartRadio soon, so you can catch up with me there. That should be happening in the next few weeks. If you have an Android tablet or phone, go to the Google Play Store. Type in Cooper Talk one word. You can get my app. All my episodes are on there. iTunes and Stitcher. They uh, are Cooper Talk one word again, and all my episodes are there. And also send me an email, new email address, cooper at coopertalk.net. You can send me an address, uh, email to see who you want to see and all that good stuff like that. So yeah, just keep listening. I have some great guests coming up in the next few months. Remember, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Send me an email. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't remember, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.